And we are back like we forgot something on the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast, proudly presented by ActiGel 208. Joey, tell the folks what they need to know about ActiGel 208. I'll tell you some recent uh, success that we've had with ActiGel was just last week in some lab tests with a ready-mix supplier. Started out with 30% manufactured sand, and that's what they use pretty often. And uh, we were able to add ActiGel to that mix and bump that percentage up to 60, 80, and even 100% total manufactured sand replacement. We did mixes with and without ActiGel. The man sand mixes without ActiGel were just unstable. They wouldn't even hold under a slump cone. They were basically rocks with a little bit of paste. We threw some ActiGel in there and made that paste a lot more robust, a lot of cream, made a nice slump. It was good and creamy, uh, the kind of stuff you want to go through a line pump. To top it all off, their uh, man sand source is about a third of the price of their natural sand. So Golly. dollars upon dollars worth of savings, even with the cost of ActiGel. Good stuff, good stuff. And we're doing that all the time for you people out there listening. If you want to learn more about the ActiGel 208 product, the link is in the description of this podcast. And you can always feel free to go to acti-gel.com. That will get you where you need to go on the Active Minerals website. Rolling right along into the episode here, boys. Um, How we doing? I tell you, boy, uh, that intro music got me sitting up in my chair. My guy, that's what. Hey, mm-hmm. that's a bringing it hard today. Can't I love go it. wrong with some hair band music. That is Judas Priest coming at you. There is a special place in my heart for hair metal. Oddly <laughs> 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 enough. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. It was a great time to be alive. You could pretty much do whatever you wanted. But, it was the Wild West back then. But see, if Joey had long hair, it'd be like a mullet halfway down his oh, yeah. back. Oh yeah. I've tried to grow my hair out, and I just can't get past that. That Ronnie Dunn homeless slash homeless person phase. Yeah, the awkward stage is real. Um, mm-hmm. I tried long hair for a while and it did not go well, so it uh, it was a one and done for me as well. <laughs> I tell you what, if if any of you people out there are wondering, Paul has the best hair of the the three oh. of us for sure. He does. He's oh. got got the got that lettuce flow. You should have played lacrosse in high school. Is what you should have done. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I'm from Alabama. Back in the day, we had the, the Bama Bangs, and if anybody's wondering what Bama Bangs are, you just look up John Parker Wilson. Just Google that for a second. He's a quarterback <laughs> at Alabama. And, you know, the 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 interesting part about that uh, trend is I was actually, like, on the front end of that curve of what these, these Bama Bangs, but it wasn't because I was stylish at all. It was because I had a unibrow, and I didn't know you could get rid of it. I was just trying to hide it, <laughs> and that hairstyle <laughs> <laughs> And that hairstyle just happened to come into popularity, and I was like, yes! I'm like, right on this. Modern problems require <laughs> modern solutions. <laughs> and then, then I get... Then I got to be like uh, 18, and, so, and you know, girls like you know, you can just like get rid of those. And I was like, you can get rid of them. They're like, yeah, we have these things called tweezers. I was like, that's what those are for. <laughs> you know, I was a caveman. I didn't know anything. Same. It hurts so bad though when you. Oh, good stuff, good stuff. Well, let's bring this back into the realm of of concrete. We got a good guest for you guys today. We have Connor Cooper joining us on the podcast. Uh, he is the head of business development for the Ultra Low Carbon Concrete Product Solutions. Say that three times. Um, I might not even have to go back and edit that. I think I nailed that first time. <laughs> yeah, and over, over at Carbon Built, but I, I tell you, we held his feet to the fire on some of the stuff, and man, he was he was good. He was. He was. We weren't the first people that probably grilled him on carbon credits and, and emissions and all the buzz terms that we talk about so frequently here on this episode. But, you know, we it was you that found the guest, wasn't it, Paul? Yeah, so yeah. we found him through uh, Blair Block. So we have, we have a mutual customer, and Matt Blair over there was telling me about these guys. and was like, hey, they're the real deal. 
wanted to try and like understand it because you you read like the infographics and all that, you know, and it's like, man, what what are they actually doing? Mm-hmm. It was actually working, and uh, you know, talking with them, it, it made a little more sense, and I think it's got more merit than maybe some of the other things that are out there. But with that being said, uh, they're they're all about these carbon credit things, and me and Josh were not about to let. Uh, somebody just just willy nilly start talking about flipping <laughs> carbon credits and you know kudos to Connor because he he stood there and, and went toe to toe with us on that kind yeah. of stuff yeah did it did it very well um, usually when we're talking smack we're talking into the stratosphere into the ears of our faithful listeners um, but we finally got someone on to talk from the other side of the spectrum there which is which is always nice and that's what we strive to do I think the one thing we have left to do is get a union rep on here uh, <laughs> and, then, and then we'll actually have a, a fair playing field there for as much crap as I give unions but um, speaking of that that leads me right into what I wanted to talk to you guys about now OSHA is not technically a union but they do like to exploit companies okay uh, and via, via regulation, via regulation, which is like double whammy for you, right? Right. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not one for authority, and uh, especially, <laughs> especially when that authority is tied directly to their bottom line. So it's just like it's just like cops, right? Like I'm I'm a huge supporter of our police force all over the place, even the federal ones to a degree. Back to blue. I do back the blue. Our federal alphabet army, though, isn't... Anyway, anyway, <laughs> moving on. Uh, <laughs> OSHA and MSHA have a, a very special place in my heart because they wouldn't exist if they didn't write violations. Right or wrong? Right. So they, they have, have to collect money. They have to yeah. collect money. They have to mm-hmm. find things that are wrong. And in order to find things that are wrong, they, they tend to pick on the big guys once in a while, right? Well, Tudor Perini that we've talked about several times on this podcast. They're one of, if not the largest contractor in the United States. A report came out just last week that they had the most OSHA violations among contractors during the past decade. So over the past 10 years, they have anywhere from 5 to 55 violations per year. And over that decade, 244 total violations, fines totaling $1.2 million. So I'm like, "Eh, okay, they're either one, not doing right, or two, they're so big, OSHA's at their door every week being like, hey, hey, guys. uh." Well, that then, yeah, I love how you don't just accept the headline that you're like, wait a minute, hold on. Are we we judging this based on like uh, violations per capita? You know, it's easy, it's easy to say, like, you know, oh, they got a lot of violations. Like, yeah, they got a lot of jobs. Right. And so, but how many? you know, violations per job, and let's re-rank these folks. And I'm glad you asked, Paul. So, <laughs> so uh, each, each one of the OSHA visits over the course of this decade yielded 1.5 violations, right? So you can say, oh, they've had a total of 1.2 million in fines and 244 violations over the past decade, and that's your shock value, right? Mm-hmm. But then you dive into the into the metrics a little bit, and it's got like, oh, 1.5 violations per visit. So that means they're being visited 16 times a year. <laughs> of the 244 total violations, only four were repeat violations. Uh, 86 were serious. What serious means, I yeah, don't know. Yeah, what serious means. Yeah. I, I, even, I even dug 
into OSHA's website and like, what is a serious violation? And it was quite the word salad. Ain't nobody got time for that. And then they had 154 other than serious violations. So um, these figures also included Tudor Perennial subsidiaries. They have like two or three different subsidiaries that go under a different name, but they're all under the same umbrella. You get what I'm saying. So how does that pit them against the rest of the industry, right? So the rest of the industry where Tudor Perini has 1.5 violations per visit, the, their closest competitor, let's say, is at 0.9. So they're quite a bit higher than who is in second. There's a couple at 0.9. Most were 0.6 and below. But these are only general contractors that are grossing over $3 billion a year in revenue. So you're talking about like 20 total. God, wow. so much money. I know it. I know it, right? And actually, looking at Tudor Perini's um, job list, they don't have that many per se. Like, they have a dozen-ish active at, at any given time, but it's not outside their own possibilities that $1 billion out of that $3 billion in revenue comes from, like, one huge job. Yeah. Like, they were on that high-speed rail line out in um, Los Angeles that mm-hmm. may or may not be completed by the time we die. Um, I was about to say, we're really about to dive into that right now. No, we're not. (laughs) No, we're not. No, we're not. But I find it interesting that in their, you know, because they're a publicly traded company, their their financial reports that they filed with the SEC, they don't list or disclose the OSHA violations or any litigation tied to that. Because most of the time when OSHA comes down with a violation, you have the chance to appeal that. Um, so you would have litigation fees and stuff like that in order to do so, or you just, you know, that's not enough for us to worry about. We'll just pay it because it's not worth the legal fees. There's a ratio there somewhere between what they're willing to pay and what they're willing to fight. But what I also found was interesting, if this is such a big deal, right? If OSHA's visiting them 16 times a year and they're giving them one and a half violations and they have 86 serious violations over the past decade, they are not on OSHA's federal reform program list. OSHA has a federal reform program list for serial offenders, and you will not find Tudor Perini's name on it. Is anybody from the construction world on there? Or, again, their ballpark on there? There, there are a few, but none of, none of the contractors that are on this particular list are one of those companies above the $3 billion in revenue. Like, there's yeah, no yeah, big guys you. there. I got you. Huh. So I found that interesting. So, so where did where did this article come from? Construction dive, of course. Love those guys. Yeah, <laughs> awesome. And Absolutely. Who, uh, any background into who did the reporting on this? Uh, it was done by Matthew Thibault. Interesting. And Julia Himmel. So there's uh, a, a new thing that kind of came across my radar a few years ago. Um, the guys on this, hosting this podcast, they they know my brother decently well. Uh, my brother used to run with an organization, and they would uh, cultivate media stories. So what I learned then is that if you wanted something to become a story, like in the zeitgeist, you know, to be known, the first thing you would do is you would actually write it yourself. And this is I'm gonna t- I'm gonna tell you guys this, and you're gonna you're gonna say, wow, I see this pattern today, especially in politics. But you, you see it, you can actually see it everywhere. Um, and he was the first person that clued me into this years ago. So now, when anytime I read anything, my first thought is, all right, where did this come from? Who paid for this? Mm-hmm. So my brother and his uh, organization they would write these uh, articles, 
and they, they would write it themselves, and then they would call uh, microbloggers and other bloggers, guys who might have 1,000 to 10,000 readers, and, and they would say, hey, would you put this out? And you pay those people like five bucks, and they'll put out anything you want and put their name on it, right? So he's written the article, or somebody in his organization has written the article, but somebody else has tags it as a byline. So they do this to hundreds of blogs or microblogs. And so then once all those people have released it, then they call the bigger guys, the local newspapers, and they say, hey, are you seeing this story like right in your area? It's kind of picking up some traction. There's a ton of people writing about this. And they're like, wow, they sure are. Let me let me do that. Like, yeah. And so they just reprint what was in the microblogs because they don't want to do actually any reporting. And so they just reprint. What's in so then they call the national papers and the national websites they go, do you guys see what's going on down here? Like, wow, there's a lot of traction. We got, uh, you know, but but really the the local newspapers are sourcing the microblogs. The big newspapers are sourcing the local newspapers, and then the national people are sourcing the other. So, according to multiple reports, and it's all from one article that was written by one guy that paid a bunch of people to put it out. Mm-hmm. And so. You see that in politics as well, but the articles that come from, like, uh, let's say there's a hit piece on a Democratic candidate, and it's, like, uh, not named Pete Buttigieg, and you would say, huh, I wonder if that came from, from old right. Pete, who's getting a bunch of heat right now for uh, showing up to East Palestine and $600 loafers, uh, you know, touring the site for 20 seconds and leaving, and he wants to deflect that from himself. So you pay somebody to put it an article in there saying, yeah, well, did you see how bad this guy is at his job? Yeah. You know, they start trading these haymakers. Yeah. Using the media for deflection. Using the media. mirror tactics. But the media didn't write it. Right. You know, someone in Pete's camp wrote it, and and they're laundering it through the media. And so when I see pieces like this about Tudor Perini, my first thought is, was this individual journalism? Mm -hmm. Or somebody was like, you know what I would like to do? I'd like to go out there and investigate to, you know, the largest player and, and see if they're safe. Or did somebody else down on that list craft themselves a, a, an article with with a narrative? Like, who's benefiting from this? Who paid for this? I'm always fascinated in that kind of stuff. It's funny that you bring that up, too, because I was reading recently, like within the, the last couple of weeks I was reading this, that uh, there was a contractor on the books to do the uh, DC, I guess, 495 DC uh, Beltway expansion project. And they pulled off the job recently, and I, I, for what reason, I'm not sure, but Tudor Perini picked that job up. So that just hmm. happened recently. And then uh, according to this date, less than a week later, this article comes out about their uh, safety record. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So since we like to theorize. Conspiracy <laughs> theories, the alarm bells are going off inside this studio right now. <laughs> but I'm, and then, but the funny, th- the, the really hilarious thing to me is you're reading off the stats, right? They had like one violation uh, per project or something. And I'm sitting here like, well, wow, that's really good. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking about all the job sites I've been on. I'm like, one, really? Yeah. All right, that's great. Good Did they even guys. get out of the truck? and we don't mean that at Tudor Perini we mean like in general now yeah yeah, we're talking us back on OSHA here like OSHA just shows up don't even get out of the truck and we're like yeah we'll we'll cite them a few times keep it under the limit that they're willing to uh, that they're willing to to pay and not litigate yeah yeah I bet you MSHA could have flown through there and just picked up no telling how many violations dude MSHA's hardcore yeah 
they'll find you for an overflowing trash can. Literally, like we found that out. Yeah, trash on the ground from an overflowing trash can is is yeah. a, a findable offense, man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, having the wrong stuff in the wrong trash can, like you have like food waste right. in a non-food waste receptacle, is an offense. Like they are not playing around. Yeah, and yeah, that's why when someone tells me like, "Oh, 244 violations over the last decade," I'm like, "Huh, I can see that." Years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I was like, "Okay, yeah. yeah, one per job." Right, right. Checks out. Yeah, <laughs> that's 24 years. That's two a month across how many job sites? Josh know? said about you know at least at least 12 a year probably. Yeah, so 12 ain't, a year. Ain't, ain't telling. Maybe I don't know. We're not in tutors business, but but still. Yeah. Well, I mean, each each one of OSHA's visits. Now they could have visited the same job site, or they could have visited. Well, you said only ones. four pe- repeat offenders there, correct? Which yes. means they're cleaning up. Like, oh dang, we didn't realize that was going. Or, I mean, how many times you see a new guy doing something he didn't? You know, you told him, but he especially didn't nowadays turnovers crazy. So you, you told a guy not to do something dumb, and he's out there doing something dumb. Yep. Was it MSHA or OSHA or maybe even both? that uh, when one of those reps comes on site, like they basically don't leave without writing up something. Is that true, or is that just kind of hearsay? I've never heard that, but I think it kind of lends to what Josh was like sort of tangentially saying, like, hey, we back the blue, but the way those dudes get paid is like yeah. tickets have to come in. I mean, taxes go to some of it, but the way they – hey, we need to increase revenues. Like, all right, put the patrolman out on the interstate, and let's catch us a couple folks. Mm-hmm. 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 Well, yeah, it could be, I mean, a violation. It could probably be like uh, some sheet is missing out of the MSDS on some chemical that you haven't used in uh, three that's, years. It's stowed away dude. back in the back closet somewhere. Or or the, uh, we had one one time, I don't think the, I think we were missing an MSDS. I think one time like the, the MSDS folder wasn't in the right spot inside the building. It was yeah. like on somebody's desk because they were using it. And they were like, oh, and you, have to, you have to put it back. You know, it's like, well, yeah, exactly. we were going to like. Just, yeah. yeah. Mor- moral like of the story is if they want to find something, they will. Exactly. Amen. Amen. Good old alphabet boys. Yeah. Let's talk about the IRS. <laughs> really? No. Oh, no. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Sit up in my chair here, spin my hat backwards. We'll get after it. I wanted so badly to have some kind of good segue. Because <laughs> earlier you were like, yeah, actually. We could talk about how taxation is theft as yeah. long as you want, Paul. I'm here for that. Dude, dude, I got married and got put into a new tax bracket, so my CPA just sent me a bill. Really? <laughs> I was like, I, was like oh, I think you missed some deductions. <laughs> like, that can't be right. <laughs> and so, But, uh, yeah, you like you said earlier, you're like, yeah, we actually, back to what we actually support the mission of like our alphabet boys, and I so badly want to interject and be like, even the IRS. No, I came in there. <laughs> I, could, I couldn't. I had to, you're on a roll. I couldn't derail. <laughs> oh. yeah. my, my my goal when we do these segments is to get to the point where I can cut out the the minimal amount of audio possible. That way we can maintain our jobs and still create a good podcast. So I stopped myself short there. That way I didn't have to do any serious editing. Yeah, that's, that's a fine good. line to walk sometimes. <laughs> Most times. Most times. <laughs> all right. All that, we'll, we'll put that behind us in the rearview mirror and get to our guests, the real reason that people tune into this podcast, uh, to hear from experts about stuff that we're genuinely interested in. We always feel we can give you guys a good episode if we learn something in the process. Bring someone on that can make us smarter and then thus make our listening audience smarter as well. And uh, we got Connor Cooper coming on, uh, like we talked about 
uh, BD um, for the ultra low carbon concrete product solutions that they have there at Carbon Built. Um, so he's going to talk to us and answer all of the questions that Paul and I had for him. We threw them at him hot and heavy, and he took them all like the professional he is. So without any further ado, here's Connor Yellinger. Ladies and gentlemen, we have with us today from Carbon Built, Mr. Connor Cooper. Thank you, sir, for joining the program. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Appreciate it. Absolutely, brother. So what you guys are doing is uh, super interesting. But before we get into Carbon Built, I want to get a little bit more into you. Uh, what You have a concrete background coming over to this, uh, this sort of technology startup. So why don't you give us a little bit of what your background is? Sure. Uh, yeah, so I joined, joined Carbon Built about a year and a half ago. Uh, prior to that, spent some time, about 10 years, with Old Castle APG, which is one of the larger concrete product producers in the country, one of the larger building materials company, if you kind of roll up to the parent, which is CRH out of, uh, out of Ireland. So kind of been on the manufacturing side, and prior to that was actually in the distribution side of some of these products. So kind of seen it from, from all different directions. And, you know, most recently was, was overseeing a business that had a 18 or 19 manufacturing sites that had a combination of concrete masonry units and kind of architectural block pavers and retaining walls and more the hardscape business. And then, then also dry mix concrete, which is like a Sacreter and a Merrimix with the, with the brands that we were producing. So good familiarity with all things dry cast concrete. And, and, uh, that extends right into the you know, the dry mixed concrete side of things. And, and uh, so that's the lens with which I, I guess, initially viewed carbon built and, and what was happening. And frankly, was excited about the unique blend of both sustainability and meaningful sustainability impact and, you know, the potential to drive, drive the bottom line in a new way. So yeah, that's a little bit, a little bit about me and, and uh, excited for the, the discussion today. So, Hold on a second. How did you go from being the guy making the box or overseeing the operations of people making the box and then coming over to the dark side? And now you're one of the people showing up at their door trying to, to hawk them something. I mean, you had, to, you had to fight those people away for years, man. Now you're, now you're one of them. What, what caused you to make that transition? Honestly, I mean, I think one of the biggest drivers is just seeing a lot of different technologies come through, a lot of different sales folks and business development folks pitching things. And, and I'm, I think, uh, always, always been someone to take a look at it and never really found that right combination. And I think when it comes to green products, um, the instant you start talking about things that are going to increase cost, it, it becomes niche. And so a lot of what, what I think carbon built's doing and the uniqueness of what we're doing is, is, is it's actually decreasing the cost profile. So there's a return on investment and, and when you're able to meaningfully impact sustainability, um, and lower that embodied carbon while delivering on cost savings or margin improvement, that's, that's a very unique blend. And so I found that incredibly intriguing and had to uh, spend a little time investigating myself before joining. But yeah, really, really excited about what we're doing. And, and I think it can have a, a, an impact beyond any, any single plan. I think it's really a, uh, an industry pivot that's in the future. Well, and so that's how we cross paths is, is actually in the industry. Uh, we have a similar customer. We have a, a shared customer, uh, Blair Block down in Childersburg, Alabama. Uh, Matt Blair there is not shy about taking on or at least trying new technologies. And if they work, he adopts them. And he tried ours eight years ago and adopted it, and he's been using it ever since. And then he came across you guys. Uh, I would like to know, how would you get hooked up uh, with Matt Blair and what – are you providing Blair Block exactly? Because I, I, I think when you look at the marketing materials, it 
it's like, oh, we're going to pump in carbon dioxide and it's going to sequester and create calcium carbonate. It's like, okay, well, what's really going on there? So uh, using Matt as a, uh, as a great case study, just walk us through what that process was like linking up with him and then getting to where you are, where he's your uh, customer there in Alabama. Yeah, I mean, Matt's been a, fr- a fun journey that that precedes even my time at, at Carbon Built. I think his uh, his understanding of what we're doing actually goes back to some of the research that was happening at UCLA. So Carbon Built's a spin out from UCLA and, and some of the research that happened at the Institute for Carbon Management there. And, you know, one of the things that they were working on uh, before Carbon Built was even a company was kind of all of the research and trials and and uh, they were involved in something called the X Prize competition. So at the time, it wasn't you know Elon Musk's X Prize; it was the NRG Cosia X Prize. And so that team, as part of that competition, needed to do some trials around um, showcasing this technology that had been worked on in the lab and bringing it to pilot scale. And and so uh, there were two trials that happened at that level. One happened uh, up in Wyoming with a producer up there. And then uh, the other one happened to ha- happened to occur at, at Matt's plant in Alabama. And really the process was to make blocks with Carbon Built's mixed design at the plant and then truck them on over to uh, the power plant that was nearby and use dilute carbon dioxide. So flue gas from that power plant essentially in a chamber to, to showcase the fact that you could achieve mineralization and gain strength, you know, as part of that test profile. And so... The, the team that had competed was able to uh, showcase not only the strength gain, but the mineralization component and drive uh, sequestration of carbon dioxide into the blocks. And that became the foundation not only for the team to, to win the X prize, but at the same time spin off into its own standalone company. And, and uh, we're fortunate to have a couple folks that were involved in that as part of the team today that, that's working to commercialize the technology. So that's the, that was the starting point in terms of the relationship with Matt. Um, like I said, I joined Carbon Build about a year and a half ago and uh, had, had a number of interactions since then. And, and I think as our uh, capabilities have unfolded and, and given that there was a baseline relationship, we're able to translate that into you know, our first commercial partner and, and come up with a, a plan to move forward where we can, we can all collaborate and, and all take advantage of some of the uh, the opportunity that comes with with the carbon built technology. I think you'd mentioned trying to learn a little bit more about you know what exactly it is that we're doing. So really, really the approach we're taking is kind of twofold. And, and you'd mentioned the carbon dioxide component being one of them, but the really the first step in, in our process is around looking at the the materials it's themselves or the binder materials. Everyone's traditionally used you know OPC and maybe Portland cement with a little bit of slag or an additive or uh, potentially a, a fly ash. And, and so I think really we're, we're kind of taking some of that mindset and just building on it and, and saying, you know, what are some other SCM-like materials that we can incorporate into a mix that will give us the, the chemistry we're looking for? And, and some of the things that we identified, um, you know, kind of going back to the research at, at UCLA, a lot of it surrounded kind of hydrated lime as one of the baseline materials. And so we've been able to take that that core chemistry around how hydrated lime can carbonate and extend that to thinking about, you know, a process that looks a little bit different, but still gets us to the end result that that's uh, really, you know, at its core meeting ASTM C90 and and those specifications. Um, If you were to take the materials that we're talking about and 
pull a whole bunch of cement out of the mix and put these materials in and not do anything on the back end, you know, you, you would just end up with performance that's lackluster. You wouldn't get to those specifications. You'd end up pulling out a bunch of cement and maybe uh, deliver a little bit of hydration gain. But at the end of the day, you're not, you're not hitting those, you know, that 2000 PSI benchmark that you may need to achieve. And so what we do on the back end that's, that's a little bit different is we've designed in, in kind of the project working on at Blair is to introduce some sort of dilute CO2 source into that equation. And so what we proved through some of the pilots I was describing is that we can use, you know, something that's a dilute CO2, a dirty CO2, if you want to even think of it that way, is the basis for how we introduce the carbon dioxide to the concrete and, and it still achieve a good, a good deal of mineralization, which if you do it in an accelerated format can create strength. And there's some other benefits that can come with that. Um, but it's really that, that, um, embracing of the curing process and taking advantage of that, you know, 18 to 24 hours that someone may already have as part of their curing cycle, uh, to introduce, introduce carbon dioxide and, and make the chemistry work. So if you think about the reaction that's happening or what we're capitalizing on, there's still a bit of cement, at least, at least in our initial mixes that we're using at Blair, there's still a bit of cement that's in that formulation. But with these other materials that we're layering in, um, we're able to create a carbonation reaction. So we're not just relying on hydration, which is really the, the core of what you think with ordinary Portland cement. It's all about, you know, really getting, getting everything hydrated and letting that chemistry take hold to, to create the strength. So we're still, we're still using a bit of that, but then we're layering on this carbonation effect, which is kind of filling some of those voids and, and just adding to the strength. And we're doing it in a very uh, short time frame, but, um, you know, lengthy enough when you've got 16, 18, 24 hours to work with in a curing cycle, you know, you can do a lot in terms of really soaking that material in, in a carbon dioxide bath and, and kind of doing it in a way that's ideal to, to really drive that effect. Um, so I don't, I'm sure there's more questions that probably come from that, but I'm trying to describe high level at, at, at what it is that Carbon Built's doing in terms of the process. Yeah, no, we, yeah, we got plenty of questions. So let's dive right into <laughs> Sure. The carbonation effect. So how is it that we're measuring uh, the transition from using a majority instead of OPC, using a majority of a high calcium filler? In this case, it sounds like you're using calcium car carbonate filler and then saying, okay, well, when we soak it in the CO2 gas, I, and I'd like, I don't know what that process looks like. Is it like a fogging inside of this chamber? And then uh, when, how, how do you prove that? through that process you have created more calcium carbonate inside of these blocks yeah so a couple couple different ways to measure that i think you can always use meters to gauge like what went into the chamber and what came out of the chamber so i think that's that's one mechanism that can that can tell you a bit about like what's been absorbed or what's been mineralized into the into the product i think the other thing that's been fairly common is to use tga analysis um to to look at you know, I'll call it limestone creation, right? And you've got, you've got ability, and this, this goes back to some of what was proven during the pilot, really being able to look at kind of what was the level of limestone essentially in the product before you started kind of curing, and then what was it after? And so that gap is really dictating to you what, what was getting mineralized into the product during that cycle. There's some variables that can skew that a bit, and so there's some things that we got to work on in terms of you know, pulling out any limestone aggregate that might be skewing those results to really hone in on what that binder's absorbing and mineralizing. But um, that's all that's all stuff that can be worked through. And 
And uh, we, you know, Carbon Built going back again to, to some of the pilots was able to, I think, not only come up with methodologies to prove it out, but then have a third party. It was three. 360 solutions, I think it's called, that was able to replicate the same process and achieve the same result in terms of calculating that mineralization level. And that was a very important component around winning winning the X Prize was was to be able to uh, to demonstrate that. So, so I think we've got you know there's, there's probably a, a little imperfection with everything that you do, but at the same time, if we can if we can triangulate from those couple of different tools, uh, gets us to a good spot. Look, concrete's more art than science you know once you're around it enough you realize that it's always going to be a little bit messy but uh (laughs) you know matt blair i've known matt blair now nine years and uh would consider him a a friend uh, you know off offline you know he's he's a good dude so i trust him so when he when he and i were hanging out in alabama last year and he told me about y'all uh and he said it really works it really does he goes it sounds like witchcraft but it actually is doing what they say it does. So I take that very seriously. And so I'm, I'm interested. So when, I, when I'm digging in here, I'm, I'm just trying to understand. So I, I know another company that's doing not, not the same process at all, but the same idea of taking a waste stream. In this case, it was it is flue gas. And one of the problems they have is because it's dirty, as you call it, like dirty CO2, one of the issues they have is that stuff can leach out. And so I don't know uh, if you guys have any issue with uh, when you're using, you know, dirty CO2, if you're having any leaching coming out of the blocks, it's not just efflorescence, you're actually uh, leaching out chlorides or something else that you really would rather stay inside the block. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say high level, you always want to understand a little bit about the, the dynamics of that flue gas, you know, whatever the, 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 the source is can, can dictate a little bit around any of those potential concerns. Um, I think when it comes to particulates and some of the, you know, some of, some of the components that might come into play, we, we do do a little bit of conditioning of that gas. So I shouldn't say it's like, you know, don't picture it coming from a stack and right into a chamber. Uh, we're putting it through a, a processing system that, that can um, not only you know, address some of the heat and humidity kind of conditions that we're trying to achieve, but but clean up the gas slightly in terms of the, the process. And I am not on the, the technical side in terms of telling you everything about, you know, what gases would make sense versus which ones don't. But I know we, we do tend to scrutinize potential CO2 sources to ensure that there wouldn't be something that would be uh, leaching out. And I think even through, you know, some of the pilots, we used a, a coal-fired plant that was a power plant and a natural gas-fired one. And and didn't demonstrate any concern, you know, once we'd conditioned that gas, there was no concern about any sort of um, leaching effect like you might be describing from any of those pilots. Yeah, because, I mean, they're running studies now at other places. I think the big one going on that's funded by the federal government is uh, one of the University of Illinois campuses, and they are running a, a massive study of basically hooking up a system to directly to the exhaust chamber of some power plant and taking the flue gas offline and conditioning it, scrubbing it, and seeing mm-hmm. what they can separate and what they can't. Uh, so not just scrubbing it and, and saying, oh, now I've got clean CO2, but like what other gases can you pull out of there and separate, you know, run them through some molecular sieves and see what we can pull out and store and then and then use later. So when you're developing carbon built, and I realize that you came on 18 months ago and uh, the guys who developed it, we're at UCLA, but what I wasn't uh, clear on when I was trying to read the white papers and stuff on it is 
why they chose the sources they chose for the SCMs. So they're using the what well, looks like calcium carbonate, uh, fine finely ground calcium carbonate. That uh, so it's a it's high in calcium, but it wasn't necessarily high in alumina or other minerals that you would think would be you know traditionally a good thing when you're talking about making a, a cement composite. Uh, any insight for us there on how they chose what they chose? Yeah, I mean, I think it was really driven by the, not so much a cement composite, but more about what's going to readily react with carbon dioxide. And I think that's really the calcium hydroxide piece, probably more so than even calcium carbonate. Like we're, I guess, and technically we're converting calcium hydroxide into calcium carbonate in terms of how you think about the mineralization process and kind of creating limestone interwoven with the block. So I think that was a, that was a key backdrop to any of the research was really around how to drive that carbonation effect and, and utilize CO2. So it wasn't, I don't think it was as much about, though there is some, you know, poslins and some reactivity that's happening that's giving you kind of cross benefit. I don't think it was, you know, solely driven by the cementitious mindset. The other thing I would say is, is uh, the, you know, the base case for, for carbon built and some of the, the flue gas I was describing really was proving we could use dilute CO2 more so than even being reliant on just like a flue gas CO2. So uh, when, when you think of all the different places you can get carbon dioxide, you know, rather than it be a requirement to be at, you know, 98% purity and filling the, the chamber with a very densified CO2 was we can, we can put uh, a lower concentration of CO2 in the chamber. And so therefore it can come from a whole bunch of different sources that may naturally be at lower concentrations and circulate that CO2 in the chamber. And, and, you know, our process, we're not looking to pressurize. We're not looking to uh, do anything extreme in terms of the temperatures, but really circulate the gas through the chamber and, uh, and have that, that kind of pass through and, and kind of the mineralizations that's happening as we're circulating be the mechanism versus, you know, any sort of, uh, again, pressurized vessel for per se. With your, your scrubbing process, I mean, you're taking, you know, flue gases from, you know, different power plants and depending on where you're at, uh, I'm, I'm sure the source varies. Do you adjust for that source on the back end through uh, mix design and cure process or through your scrubbing process? Can you basically take a lot of your dirty CO2 and, and produce something that's, uh, that cuts out a lot of the variables that you can use um, at, at different facilities. So if there's an emitter right next door or even at the site that we could tap into, that's a, it's an easy place to look for carbon dioxide and, and potentially condition it and utilize it. Um, but for the most, for the most part, a lot of block plants don't have that potential. So, you know, really two things you then look for. One would be captured CO2 could come off of, uh, you know, byproduct of ethanol production could be from buildings or other plants where anywhere that the CO2 is being captured. And I think the only thing I would exclude from that conversation is we don't, we don't really care for the merchant CO2 that might come from the ground. That's obviously something that's not, not an ideal setup from a sustainability standpoint or from a climate impact standpoint. So um, really our, our preference is to continue to look at, at, uh, and, and really our, our, our guardrail is around making sure it's a waste CO2 that we're, that's, that's kind of going into our process. Um, the other mechanism is really what we're doing at Blair, where we're actually taking waste biomass. So picture cutoffs from a lumber mill or 
material that would be piled up and decompose or burn otherwise and putting that through a boiler, which is creating our gas. Um, and then we're capturing the, those emissions. So they're, they're no longer being emitted into the, uh, into the atmosphere without a carbon capture mechanism. So, um, you know, with that in mind, we get two, two byproducts from that process. One is heat, which we can use for a bunch of different things at the plant. And then the other is the carbon dioxide or the flue gas coming from this biomass process, which we're then, you know, kind of conditioning and using in our process at Blair. And, you know, we've started that, that commissioning phase at that plant. So excited to be able to share more and more as the, the months unfold and, and, and we look to commercialize fully. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Blair's the really, I mean, it's a great stomping ground because Matt's so honest and uh, he'll tell you what's going right and what's going wrong and, and give you a little bit of flexibility because Lord knows we needed it when <laughs> it was our uh, our first liquid actual installation. Uh, you, you know, you mentioned something. I, I don't know that you were necessarily taking a, a shot at a competitor, but you mentioned something that some competing carbon products have that are necessary for their stuff to work, and that is that they have to have a, a pressurized vessel, a special thing on site at the plant that you then have to pay to lease and it can be uh, quite quite a lot going into um, having a carbon product being uh, like a liquid co2 being piped into your concrete and you guys don't have that so i don't want to assume that blair is going to be your model where you've got this uh wood biomass that you're able to to take care of but maybe it is maybe it is the 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 typical setup but if it's not uh, what would it look like in the future as you're taking flue gas and storing if it's not pressured then how on earth are you transporting it where you know economically storing yeah. it economically and using it economically two probably different perspectives one's the short to medium term and one's the long term i'll start with the long term because that's really where i think it's like the most exciting viewpoint of how all this could come together and and uh, actually, just yesterday, we had an announcement that came out um, specific to a, a group called the Four Corners Coalition, which is a bunch of states in the south southwest uh, U.S. And they've they've given us a, a grant towards a project that we're going to tackle uh, in Flagstaff, Arizona. And it's really bringing together a block plant, us as a technology provider in terms of what Carbon Built's doing with the mixes and the mineralization. And a CO2 supplier, which in this case, a company called Air Capture, which is a direct air capture company. Um, so don't, not sure how much you know about direct air capture, but it's the concept is that we're going to take the ambient air and put it through uh, a capture device and be able to pull that CO2 out. So we're, we're pulling uh, CO2 directly from the atmosphere. And then ultimately, once you've done that process, you need to do something with it. And so we're excited about what we can bring to the table because that CO2 gets pulled from the atmosphere could then be used to not only help cure the concrete and create strength in our blocks, but also be stored away, you know, in a permanent way. So if I were to picture where are we 10 years from now, and, and there's a lot of work that needs to get done on this direct air capture. It's, it's just, just now kind of getting tackled with a whole bunch of companies all coming at it from other angles and, and uh, it's probably where solar was years and years ago in terms of working its way down the cost curve. So it needs to, it's a, it's a process that needs to be subsidized right now. Unfortunately, there's players like, you know, the frontiers of the world that will pay a, a premium to start seeing these, you know, to seed these technologies and see them come to life. But the idea of being able to pull carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and picture having, you know, five or 10 units of these, these direct air capture units sitting at a block plant and pull that carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and then use that as part of the curing process and, 
and again, utilizing and store the CO2, um, I think that would be an amazing future state where we're, we're able to control our, our, uh, our supply chain and at the same time you know, have a meaningful impact from a climate sustainability standpoint in terms of pulling CO2 from the atmosphere. How we get from where we are today to there is things like we're doing at Blair, and that's, that's uh, you know, thinking about it in terms of how can we take waste materials and, and use it? How can we take waste CO2 and use it? Um, those are, you know, all, all probably not viewed to the same level as pulling from the atmosphere, but it's, uh, it can prove, prove out the technology and I think set the stage for people to transition to these better ideal sources as time goes on. Yeah, the uh, direct air capture it, it sounds really great. Um, I, I'm not trying to be negative. I just have done a, a decent bit of research into that. And, yep. and right now it is so cost prohibitive. It, it, the, the, it's unbelievable how inefficient and costly it is right now. So as you said, a lot of work needs to get done. So we don't need to get on a negative tangent. Uh, but yeah, if, if that's the way it is, it sounds, it sounds great. I just, it just, there's a lot of, <laughs> a lot, a lot of work that, uh, that needs to get done to make that happen, man. But you know, these types yeah. of technologies are exciting. We Nobody wants to live in a planet that's a hellscape. You know, we want, we want this place to be awesome. What uh, What's interesting to me about Carbon Built is uh, when I first heard about you guys uh, from Matt, like uh, nearly a year ago, uh, looked into the company itself. It was It was interesting that it was created. Uh, the two guys that are the co-founders, they were researchers at UCLA, and then they took it out of UCLA, and they're trying to commercialize it, and it's it's just in its infancy. You guys are brand new babies, babies in the concrete world. So uh, it's so interesting to see something uh, born this way. It's not a, a typical way that you uh, would see a concrete technology be born. Another thing that wasn't really typical uh, about Carbon Built was the management and the board of directors, like everybody that's in management, none of them seem to be concrete people. They're technology people, startups, real estate, you know, and all these things. And then I get to meet you and you're an actual concrete guy. So I got to know, man, like what's yeah. it like over there that it seems like uh, other than the founder and CEO who, who who had his hands in this thing, so he's become a concrete guy. You know, are you guys, are you guys, are there more of you, Mr. Connor Cooper? Are there more Coopers out there that are, uh, that are concrete people in the scene, they're going to take this to the moon. Yeah, I mean, well, fortunately, we got people like Matt, right, that are concrete people that we can we can kind of educate and bring up to speed on how we're approaching it, and and he can see it firsthand and buy into it. And so I think there's uh, there's mechanisms in play like that. Um, as far as the team itself, you know, our, our CEO, I think saw some of the same things that I saw and what drew me to it, and he came at it from a completely different angle. I think he was. Uh, you know, he's someone who's been a multi-time kind of entrepreneur being involved in startups and investing in startups. And so he came across Gorov, who's one of the, the founders and still runs the Institute for Man uh, Carbon Management at UCLA. He, he kind of came across him through researching uh, where he could, you know, find climate impact. And so one of those places happens to be in concrete. And, and uh, as he research further, wanted to invest in Carbon Built and found himself not only investing, but becoming becoming the CEO because he became more and more passionate about uh, about the road ahead. And so I think we've got we've got this combination of folks that have been around, you know, startups and and venture capital and and understand all of those pieces. We've got the technology folks like Gorov that I mentioned and Iman, who's our head of engineering that are mm -hmm. that are bringing uh, a lot of the perspective around 
mineralization, concrete science, cement science, SCMs. I mean, all that, all that to the table. And, uh, and then, you know, myself with, with a stronger background and, in uh, understanding of what, what really makes the industry tick and, and been fortunate, you know, through some of my experiences to, to build a pretty good network of folks across the industry um, that I've been able to, you know, have conversations with about what we're doing and, and I think build some excitement and, and uh, frankly build some excitement not only at the company by company level, but I think for the industry as a whole, there's, there's a lot of ongoing conversation about natural sequestration and how uh, con- concrete masonry units could be a good place to, to be storing CO2 and it's already happening more readily than in other types of concrete. And I think we just, we, we just take that concept and elevate it to a whole different level. You know, we put in materials that c- are, are capable of absorbing more CO2 or mineralizing more CO2. And, and we use a mechanism that's not happening over time. It's happening quickly. And with that speed, um, and that accelerated carbonation, that's how we get the strength. So it's, uh, it's coming at it from a different angle and, you know, if we're able to continue to reduce the embodied carbon in concrete products and combine that um, with no real price premium, you know, now now we're we're talking about a, a pathway that the whole industry could embrace to try and start taking back market share. Because I think you guys have been around for a while. You've probably seen the decline of things like concrete masonry units over the last 20 years. And there was a whole lot more that got made and a whole lot more block plants that were in play uh, years and years ago versus where we are today. Well, so that's what's interesting. I I, I didn't want to bring this up. You kind of led down that road about. <laughs> uh, so I, I'm going to say, you know, one of the things that surprised me seeing that there were so many people on the carbon built management team that looked like they were from the venture capital, private equity, uh, like the McKinsey side of things, the, you know, the consultants that they would potentially look at the block industry and not see it as an opportunity, but say, hey. That you know, it's going to cost us a lot of money to get you know very you know minimal minimal sales compared to you know concrete as a whole or other industries that may be out there, and they might not have seen block concrete block masonry you know traditional CMUs as like a a, a path to business success, and uh, you know we've seen it go down as well. And yeah, I don't know. It's interesting that they they would have those backgrounds and still say yeah block block is where we need to to tech this thing. Yeah, and I, I would say it's a great starting point. Um, you know, if you think of the concrete manufacturing globally, it's what thirty to forty billion tons a year are made. You know, in all various types of forms, and I think it's estimated that concrete masonry units only make up roughly ten percent of that. Ten um, percent of forty billion tons is still a massive amount of concrete when you think of it. You know, at that at that level, and I think there's a there's a conversion here around not only that scale. But combining that with kind of the research and where it started. And I think, you know, there's some interesting things about dry cast concrete and, and concrete masonry units in particular, where there is a little bit more porosity. There's a bit of more readily, you know, ready capability of absorbing and mineralizing CO2. And that's frankly where a lot of the focus was at, at UCLA and then kind of the basis for Carbon Belt. So uh, it's been natural, natural for us to focus first and foremost on that core understanding. I do think as we as we move forward, there, there'll be opportunities to extend it to things like SRWs and, and hopefully from there on to pavers. Um, all of those products are similar in terms of curing where it's an extended period of time that they're sitting in a chamber. So it just speaks a little bit to the, you know, to the cycle we already have to work with, which is, you know, anywhere from 
again, I've probably seen 16, 18 hours up to 24 hours that things are sitting in a, in a chamber, but that's, that's a long time to be able to make a process happen and, and utilize CO2. So well, that's actually what I, I like better about y'all's product than some of the other competing products that are out there is that it is over time and you're, li- you're literally saturating it inside of a closed off room. You're not yep. just trying to inject it for a short mixing period and watching the gas like actually fly out of the top of the ready mix truck or something. You know, you're actually, it, it, you know, giving it time to absorb the CO2 as you're fogging it there in the kiln. Yeah, no, I think it, it creates a very uh, interesting opportunity for dry cast concrete in particular. You know, it's uniquely positioned to be able to capitalize on that time and and stick to, you know, the manufacturing processes it stands today. I think there's things about you know, carbon build. I think the three the three things I would say that were kind of core to any of the thought process when it goes back to you know how do you develop something like this? It mm-hmm. was if it costs more, it's going to be, you know, kind of niche in nature, and we want to be we want to be able to scale and have it be broad impact. So, um, you know, cost is an important piece. I think table stakes are just performance of the product as a whole. We got specifications we need to hit. So if we can't hit those, those specs, then it's kind of a non-starter. And then the last thing is just around, you know, adoption wise, if you're extending curing cycles or your, you know, CapEx is, is so great that you can't get a return. Those are things that are going to stop people from uh, embracing this type of technology. And so I think, you know, we kind of check all those boxes where it's, it's, uh, if anything, it's, it's actually margin and margin improvement that we can deliver and do that between, uh, taking expensive cement out of the mix and putting in some cheaper materials and combining that with, uh, you know, carbon credits. There's both an opportunity around avoidance credits and removal credits with our technology. So we're, we're in a unique time where we can monetize, you know, both of those things and add margin that way. And, uh, and so, you know, I think there's, there's these levers to pull that, that can help drive adoption and, and, uh, you know, put ourselves in a position to not be a, a one-off Blair block, but, but start replicating this type of approach across a lot of plants and across the country. You, you said the magic word that I, I wanted to get into today, um, because honestly, I'm confused by it. So I, I need you to, to bring not we, only the listeners, but myself, a little sense of clarity here. We sound it, like a couple of dummies today. Every, yeah. every word out of our mouth is, I don't understand. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's great. It's great. I want to I answer the questions and, and help bring some clarity so that, you know, I'm sure the listeners that are, that are part of uh, your podcast are, are probably asking the same questions. Yeah, I, I want you to speak to me about carbon credits and, and specifically explain how, how does myself, the, the imaginary company that I work for or represent here, how does me buying carbon credits remove CO2 or, or accelerate decarbonization at all? What am I actually buying and, and where does my money go? Yeah, so if, if you as the block producer are partnered up, you're actually the beneficiary of all this, not necessarily the purchaser. So I'll, I guess I'll speak to who's buying this stuff. And I think every large Fantastic corporation, story, yeah. every, every, <laughs> every large corporation has put out uh, climate or sustainability goals. And a lot of that surrounds carbon, right? They've made, a, they've made commitments to be, I don't know, things like net zero by 2050 or even faster, right? Reduce our carbon footprint by 50% by 2030. Um, 
there's there's really two ways to make that happen. One of them is they can change things about their operations and use solar and you know kind of convert towards having a lower a lower carbon footprint. Um, the other is they to get to some of those targets they're going to need to buy offsets. Think of the airline industry until there's you know sustainable fuels they're going to burn a whole lot of fossil fuels as part of their operations and they've all made commitments to dramatically reduce it in terms of their their carbon footprint. So. Um, you know, that might be one example of a potential buyer. And then there's, there's a lot of tech companies that have committed to offsetting their emissions. And uh, again, they can't, they can't uh, convert everything away from carbon emitting sources for, for energy and otherwise. So um, they need to buy these, you know, offsets to, to help adjust the, the overall footprint that they can report on their books. So if they're emitting over here, they need to purchase some things that are that are removing the the overall carbon footprint to be able to provide those those direct offsets. So so that's a little bit of the mechanisms that that are in play. Now how that correlates to what we're doing there's there's two buckets and I think everyone's got a little different view on on what's most important and how do you um, how do you navigate kind of carbon credits as a whole. What we're really doing is there's there's two buckets. One is carbon avoidance. And so when you think of cement in particular, roughly for every ton of cement that's manufactured, about a ton of CO2 gets, gets released into the atmosphere. So incredibly carbon intensive, uh, both due to the, the energy that's used, where you're heating up this clinker to extreme temperature, and also um, just the chemistry. You know, as you, as you manufacture cement, the chemistry alone is releasing CO2 into the, into the atmosphere. So there's, it's, uh, it's a very... Uh, challenging material and there's a lot of people working at how to make a lower carbon cement but uh, ultimately you got to be able to tackle it on both fronts to have the the ultimate impact of really reducing it down to something uh, much smaller than it is today so by using less cement in, in our mixes we're, we're avoiding a whole bunch of that carbon footprint just from a mixed design standpoint less cement things that are waste materials in particular could carry very little or, or no carbon footprint um, that inherently brings your carbon footprint of your mix down. So that's what I would consider to be, you know, avoidance credits. There's also this piece around mineralization. So what we're pulling from the atmosphere, pulling from these, these CO2 sources and putting into our block, um, all of those are viewed a little bit differently by, by the climate community and by the ESG community around, you know, what, what is most beneficial or what, uh, what can carry the most value. Um, a lot of people think you know, direct air capture is kind of that holy grail like we were talking about earlier. It would be ideal to pull it from the atmosphere, put it in block, and that would be your highest value credit that you could offer. But there's a lot of steps kind of in between that in terms of how we can deliver impact. And frankly, you know, I would argue anything that's getting captured today and stored away today is, is less that's going into the atmosphere. And that's just as important, if not uh, even more important, than future removals from the atmosphere. Um, but again, all of those carry a perceived value and someone's willing to pay a range of dollar amounts associated with each of those. And, and, and I think all of it's pretty meaningful when you, when you think of what's generated and how that can correlate back to an individual block and create you know, new margin opportunity. Right, right. So that was really long-winded, but <laughs> no, there's, a lot, there's a lot to it. And you probably, you probably sense there's a whole lot of complexity around these carbon markets and we as carbon built, I think, view part of our role as becoming experts in that so that we can support 
you know, the individual block companies that may not have that expertise or may never have that expertise on staff. That was a great explanation. A, a few specific questions that I wanted to ask. What materials specifically are used instead of cement for the avoidance aspect that you mentioned? You know, one that, that is probably used today that we can use in much higher quantity would be like a flash, right? It's a, it's a waste product from, you know, the power generation industry. It's getting potentially used in concrete today. It might be getting landfilled depending on the specification. Uh, there's a whole bunch of it that's been landfilled over time. You know, that's stuff that inherently carries zero or very, very little in terms of a carbon footprint, really just about the transportation or the handling more so than the material itself. Uh, so those are things that if we could use, you know, twice as much fly ash in a mix because of some of the characteristics that come when you're, when you're in you know, the chemistry that comes when you're combining it with, um, I'll say like, like a hydrated lime material or, you know, the CO2 that we're, that we're implementing as well. Um, you know, that can, that can have a big impact on your overall carbon footprint because it's offsetting a bunch of cement you're pulling out. And so I think that would just be a really good example of, you know, if we can use twice as much fly ash and therefore reduce the cement content by 30%, um, zero carbon footprint versus intense carbon footprint on each of those materials going in, you've got a, a pretty significant net savings. And then as far as the, the monetary side of it, all right, let's, let's get away from concrete specifically and let's just talk about companies that have a huge carbon footprint. Airlines, or yeah, let's let's pick on the airline industry. Um, <laughs> easy target right now. Yeah, easy, super easy target. Um, you know, they have a huge carbon f- footprint to offset, right? So, in theory, from what I understand, they're paying a relatively large sum of money to offset their carbon footprint. Who gets that money, and what what where is yeah. that money being utilized? Yeah, wide wide range of potential projects that they're purchasing credits from. Uh, a lot of the stuff historically has been around bio-based solutions, I guess I'll call it, you know, like planting trees and um, all sorts of things around, you know, how do, we, how do we create more opportunities for the environment to pull CO2 from the atmosphere? So I think there's a lot of that that's, that's been happening. And those, you know, in some ways they're good and in other ways they're very uncertain. You know, if you plant a whole bunch of trees and then they catch on fire and burn, well, that really didn't do what everyone thought it was going to do. So I think, you know, what we're trying to accomplish is a bit unique because we're trying to be able to not only make it quantifiable in terms of the amount of CO2 that we're utilizing and putting into block, but but also the there's a there's a permanency that comes with that where, you know, you know the chemistry is not going to get re- kind of reversed unless it's extreme, extreme heat. You know, you got to go to the the heat that you would see in a cement kiln to get it to that level where it's where it's kind of re-releasing. So um, it becomes a very stable format to store away CO2. And therefore, you know, how people think about the value of those credits becomes becomes hard, becomes uh, higher and and higher quality, I guess, is the, the way, you know, folks may may think about it. And there's a lot of evolving mindsets around how to credit how to put value to these things or think about these these wide range of credits that you can buy a lot of people are also thinking about like how do i buy a portfolio of credits so there's higher risk credits and lower risk credits and you pay more for the lower risk ones um this is such an evolving market that it's you know it's going to be very different five years from now where it is today from where it is today but you know there's a whole bunch of players involved because of all these commitments that have been made 
Right. And like people in our industry uh, tend to want to roll their eyes at the idea of carbon credits. Uh, the it, it inherently sounds like an extortion racket because what happens – and look, I'm not coming at you. We love your technology. I just want to be real clear. This is not at Carbon <laughs> Built here. Uh, ah. I actually want your technology to succeed. But since we've sort of gone into like the carbon credit system or educating the audience, uh, let's just bring some of – some of the concrete industry's viewpoint of the carbon credit system is that it's like an extortion racket. And uh, many people are saying that when they've been told that they need to have a carbon output of, of a certain amount and, they, and, you know, and the company comes back and says, well, I, I can't reach that to be carbon neutral. And it's like, yeah, well, you know, if you uh, just paid a little money over here to the, you know, to the yeah. collection on these, car- you know what, we'll call them carpet credits. You know, if you just paid a little bit of money, you c- I could get you down to neutral, you know, where you need to be, buddy. And they're like, oh, okay, yeah. thank God. You know, I, yeah, let me let me pay the money so that I can be carbon neutral. So it sounds a little bit crazy. Uh, so so that's kind of like the mindset that, that you, you know, a lot of people in this industry have. And so I guess when Josh is asking these questions, uh, he it, it, I feel, it doesn't I feel make, like I'm buying an NFT. <laughs> it doesn't. Well, not only are you buying an NFT, but at least if you were buying an NFT, the guy who made the NFT, you're paying him for the thing that he created. With the carbon offsets, like who are you paying? Like who? Like we're, who? Who are we paying? Who's holding the money? And then who's acting as the broker to decide? You know that money should go to carbon built so that they can continue. You know, exploring ways to make it economical to get the CO two into the block. So, so like, what's that? Yeah. What's that chain like? Who are you paying? Who's holding it? Who's brokering and deciding that that money goes to somebody? Yeah. Honestly, a lot of ways that that can be structured, and I think that's that's one of the things that we'll continue to work through as we sign up more partners. Is to you know, how do the dollars flow? I think the first thing I would say is just that that we're talking about meaningful dollars, right? If I could tell you that you could make an extra five to ten cents a block. You know, on a block that only cost you 70 cents to make in the first place, like that's that's a lot of margin improvement that could come from these types of things. Yeah, people should know that in the block industry, they measure money saved in pennies, pennies per block. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, or fractions of a penny when you fractions go back to, of, to how mm-hmm. we used to look at things uh, over the years. So uh, when, we're, when we're talking about nickels and dimes, like that's that's a that's lot of money, money in the, big money in to the a block. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's that's one that's one piece to it. Um, now how the dollars kind of come into play, there's a concept of additionality that everyone likes to throw around when it comes to these carbon credits and carbon offsets. And it's really about, you know, we're, we're paying money for something and, and buying these credits to incentivize something to happen that wouldn't have happened otherwise. And I think there's a real case to be made in our industry that, you know, if we're able to put this in play, there's going to be an ability to, I think, not necessarily drive adoption over time, like maybe we'd end up at the same place, but additionality and the, the, the fact these carbon credits are in play might help us to get there a lot faster. It just mm-hmm. makes the return better on how you know whatever the CapEx is, can set the stage for adoption and kind of de-risk the whole the whole concept that much more. And and so, you know, what these folks are really paying for is is again buying offsets that have meaningful impact and and our driving behavior that wouldn't that just wouldn't have happened on the uh, on the definitely on the timeline or or happened at all if they didn't and so um, i think that's really what a lot of the the whole carbon market's based off of is is trying to take credit 
for some of the, the carbon that's being avoided or removed by putting dollars at stake to make it happen. Does that make sense in terms of just like that, that trade-off? Because if they didn't do that and these dollars weren't at stake, you know, you don't have quite the same incentive to, to make a change. And, uh, and I think that's, you know, there's the, if we didn't have these dollars in there, like everyone may look at it and say, well, it's okay, I, but I'm not, you know, I don't want to take on all that risk to do it. But if you layer on tens of thousands of dollars of extra potential margin, you know, that's, that's a risk people may want to take. And, and so that's, that's not necessarily a bad thing when you think of overall emissions and climate goals and the whole sustainability backdrop. Well, hey, I, I personally uh, have enjoyed this education from you, Connor, really. I think Carbon Built's lucky to have you, but we can't let you out of here without asking you the most important question that we ask every guest that comes on here, and that is, what is the craziest thing you've seen on a job site, or in your case, maybe inside of a production facility? Oh, wow. All right. I think the craziest thing that has transpired, and I have not witnessed it directly, but have uh, have been the uh, beneficiary of hearing lots of stories and having to, having to navigate kind of the repercussions. Uh, a fight club that was happening in a in a plant after hours. So. You know, maybe, maybe yes. you haven't heard oh, that you're one. You're breaking the first rule, buddy. <laughs> first, first rule I'm not going to say who it was, where it was, whether, whatever part of my history, because I, I don't think we need to, you know, turn over those rocks. But uh, there, there was a time where uh, that was in play. And that's, uh, yeah, probably, that probably a first phenomenal. for y'all. So allegedly... Allegedly, <laughs> there was a fight club happening after hours at a particular concrete manufacturing site, let's call it. Yep, that's it. So, Phenomenal. Uh, there you go. That is well done, sir. That is well done. We should, that might be one of the best. Why we, we should be leading our interviews with this question. Yeah. That was so good. That was so good. Uh, look, before we get you out of here, if you had uh, any other message for the people, now's a, a great time to tell it or, or how they can get in touch with you or find out more about Carbon Built. Now's a good time. Yeah, no, I mean, I think the easy, easiest way to find out more about us and kind of get in touch is through the website, carbonbuilt.com. Uh, easy place to go and look and get more information. Um, you know, as far as any, any other last thoughts, you know, I, I, I mentioned at one point that you know, concrete masonry in particular has been been dying off, and we've seen a little resurgence since the 09, 2010, 2011 kind of trough that I think everybody hit. Uh, but we're still nowhere near back to, to what we were. And, and I think there's things that are happening on a national scale, whether it's the merger of ICPI and NCMA now becoming the CMHA. So I think it's the Concrete Masonry Hardscape Association and uh, the institutions of, of this checkoff program that's now in play. You know, we've got all the tools together to, I think, start elevating concrete products, concrete masonry, uh, in particular, in a, in a new way. The the one thing that in my eyes that has been missing is we haven't had that sustainability story. We haven't had a good a good call to action around why do you use more block again, and uh, and I think that that changes a bit as we get into whether it's carbon built technologies or some of the other technologies that we haven't discussed that are kind of from other other folks that are kind of dancing around similar concepts. Um, those are all things that should be looked at and embraced because if we can start changing the, the narrative around sustainability and concrete, you know, now we see those stick construction 
multifamilies that used to be blocked that start swinging back to block. And, and I think that's just one example, but you know, we're seeing that the, there's other building materials that have made a great case for why they're the most sustainable and why they should be embraced. And, and as we figure out ways to reduce the carbon footprint of the products we're making, um, we can we can turn that narrative on end and I think become become the more sustainable choice with all of the durability components, all of the things that that we've always touted ourselves to have in the industry. And uh, and, and if we're doing that now, we're taking market share, not just from producer A and producer B. We're taking market share from the industry as a whole and and uh, the building product space as a whole. I and mean, I think that just uh, that could put ourselves on a on a whole different trajectory where block plants aren't being closed. They're getting opened and. And expansion is a you know something that's continues to be on the horizon. So excited for the the big picture and the small piece we may play in it. Hey, we'll do anything we can to help the cause of the concrete industry. Let's take down the softwood lumber guys together. Uh, that's what he was trying yep. to say the whole time. Yep. We'll say it I, for we'll you. Say it for you. <laughs> I, uh, I, I'm not one to 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 bash any other products. I think we we're are. gonna have a. We're gonna have. <laughs> no, we're not bashing them. We're standing up for ourselves. It's yeah, just, no, I think that's a good way to put it. And I think we've got a we've got a lot of great attributes that that come with the the products we're manufacturing. And and again, we can change that narrative a bit and and showcase uh, you know some of the dynamics that haven't been in play historically. We, we, sky's mm-hmm. the limit. Love it, brother. Well said. Hey, thank you so much for joining us here. Hope you have a good rest of your day, and uh, look forward to seeing what's next from Carver Built. Awesome. Appreciate it, guys. Yep. All right. Big thanks to Cooper for coming on to the episode today and giving us all an education. We really appreciate his time and uh, you know, bringing some information that we wouldn't have previously known about uh, from a perspective that we uh, didn't have previously. Uh, so we certainly appreciate that. That's what the podcast is all about. Thanks for listening in and uh, make sure to stay up on current events with our social media pages. That's LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. If you have a question or have a guest suggestion, feel free to reach out to us through direct message on any of those platforms. Also give us a five-star rating and a review. Tell a friend about us. We love to see that listenership grow by each and every episode, and we really appreciate you guys listening along and helping us do so. Uh, Thanks to ActiGel208 for being the presenting sponsor of the podcast today. And until next time, y'all be good.